Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log Supplemental, number six. The one with Scott Mans. All right, welcome everybody to the sixth episode of the Mission Log Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast Supplemental. I'm John Champion, and I'm joined, as always, by... That's you. That's, that's your cue. Uh, Ken Ray. You say, hey. as, you say as always, but, you know, there was that one time. Oh, right. I still feel terrible about that. Yeah, well, you should. <laughs> I mean, and don't. I mean, don't. It's fine. No? You, yeah, now I don't believe you. <laughs> I'm going to lose sleep over that. Um, so here's what we do on the supplemental, if you don't know by now. We get to do whatever we want. We get to talk with guests we get to entertain your listener feedback uh, all that cool stuff we get to revisit topics that were maybe controversial or interesting deserved a little more chat and uh this episode i'm very glad to announce that we have a special guest we have scott mance he's the movie critic for access hollywood you can find him on twitter at mance movie movie mance want to get that right m-e-n-t-z and he's sitting right across from me, and uh, welcome to the show, Scott. Guys, it's great to be here. Very excited to talk about my favorite thing, Star Trek. That, and you, that's, that's really why you're here. You are a huge, huge, huge Trekkie. Huge. I mean, I go back to when I was six years old. I remember the moment when it happened. I was six years old, and we were playing ball on the street, and my buddy, at 7 o'clock, he just drops the bat, runs in the house, and says, Star Trek is on, and I'm like, what the heck is a Star Trek? <laughs> I went in and watched it with him, and the first image I remember seeing is Kirk and Scotty and Uhura and McCoy beaming up to the Enterprise, and then they fade in and out of the transporter platform. Oh. The Enterprise is going from left to right. Then there's a big flash of light. It's going from right to left. They beam aboard with new uniforms, different uniforms, and Spock has a goatee. The episode was Mirror, Mirror, and I was hooked, and I've been hooked ever since. And from that moment on, little Scott thought, when I grow up, I'm going to have a goatee. And, and I tried look, that. Did you? <laughs> I did try the goatee. It just wasn't for me. I'm not the uh, evil Spock. I'm the good Spock. Okay. <laughs> That's good. And that, is so, that is so funny because we actually, when we were talking about that episode, we said, you know, if you're going to start somebody on Star Trek, don't start them on Mirror Mirror. And you know what? It's mm-hmm. interesting because I would not show people that episode now if I was trying to show them Star Trek at its finest. Yeah. Like if I was trying to mm. convert... Uh, someone who didn't like it or didn't care about it or didn't know it, uh, I would not show them an episode like Mirror Mirror or The Doomsday Machine. I would actually show them Sitting on the Edge of Forever because I feel like that is Star Trek's finest hour in the sense that it, 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 is, it is not just a great Star Trek episode. It's great television, period. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sitting on the Edge, I, I, you know, I might be tempted to show them Doomsday Machine too. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Sitting on the Edge of Forever is kind of like it's got something for everybody. But, you know, so also keep in mind, guys, that, that this was a time in the early 70s in Philadelphia where I grew up, which Philadelphia, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, is the, was the first city, was the first affiliate to start airing Star Trek five days a week after it was canceled by NBC. Oh, wow. It was the first city to do so. So, you know, 74, you know, when I, when I started getting into it, you know, they were doing the show every night at 7 and because they were showing Mirror Mirror, just, you know, do the chronology, they were 
showing episodes like like Mirror Mirror and Doomsday Machine and Amok Time and Metamorphosis and Deadly Years, you know, second season is really as great as the first season was. Second mm-hmm. season when you had alternating directors like Joseph Piedney and Mark Daniels and Ralph Sinesky really hit its stride. It was, I mean, one great episode after another. Well, we've yeah, I mean, as of this recording, we're we're kind of early into season two, but we've right. had really strong, you know, Amok Time, uh, Doomsday Machine, Mirror Mirror, it, even the Apple, which we were a little, it was like a reluctant yes. Yeah. Does this show still hold up? You know, is it, is it still a go to episode? Um, and maybe not necessarily a lot of heavy messages right. in these episodes, but these are the ones that really drive home the characters, right? You know. Well, there were there were definitely what I like to call second tier episodes, which may not have had a significance in terms of being an allegory for the times or being a a message of of uh, uh, something that you take away from it after you've seen it. Like an episode like By Any Other Name is an episode mm-hmm. that you know isn't really about anything other than telling a, an actiony and very funny story towards the end. But it doesn't leave you with much, and I feel like the Apple's the same way. I could watch an episode right now, watch it right now, and enjoy it for what it is. And it's because of the characters more than about the story. I mean, it's such yeah. a blatant uh, destruction of the Prime Directive more than any other episode, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, from the original show. <laughs> There's not a lot of time given to the Prime Directive in a lot of no. early episodes. We mention it. So that you know that it's there and you right. know we're about to break it. That's that's kind of the rule of Star Trek now. If we talk about the Prime Directive, get prepared for us to break it. Well, well, there was one episode, uh, yeah, without veering too off track here, where mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really interesting to the sense that they really stuck by the Prime Directive, even though hmm. a prior visitor had disrupted it slightly, was Bread and Circuses. Mm. You know, there's an episode where, you know, if you watch an episode like, a piece of the action. They sure. go. There's Planet of the Gangsters. This is wrong. We got to change it. Yeah, we, this yeah, is wrong. Yeah, we yeah. got to change it. The yeah. Apple. You know, they're yeah. being fed by a machine. This is wrong. We got to change it. Yeah. But in Bread and Circuses, you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You know, they're down there. They're they're playing gladiator games, and all they want is to just get out of there. And they yeah. change nothing in that episode. And that's what makes it such a thrilling uh, climax is when they're sword fighting with the guards and. Uh, you know, Captain Merrick just throws the communicator in. They beam up at the last second just as they're firing their machine guns. Yeah. It's a thrilling moment. They didn't change a thing with the planet. They just got out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, you, you mentioned the Apple, and, and I'm glad that you did because uh, Ken, Ken and I kind of approached that from the same position, which is that anthropologically, this is just completely wrong. Uh, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, uh, Kirk, the landing party, they go down, they just determine, okay, well, this is a machine in charge, and uh, we're just going to destroy the machine, change it and leave. Right. And from an anthropological point of view, this is terrible. You know, I I think, Ken, you made the excellent point that uh, Val, the, the machine god, actually was doing everything that Val promised, which is feeding them, keeping them healthy, uh, for the people of that planet. So why in the world would Kirk and his crew then just decide to change it? There's that minor element of self-preservation that, um, well, the Enterprise is going to come crashing down into the planet. But regardless of that little detail, <laughs> it, it, Kirk's action is really hard to defend. 
Well, it's it's also hard to defend in uh, in other episodes. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that uh, uh, the side of paradise is a hot button episode in which uh, <laughs> uh, Kirk is uh, motivated by selfish reasons more than uh, thinking about the grand scheme. But you know, in the Apple, uh, you know, their reasoning, which you can play both sides of the coin, is that this is not life; it's stagnation, and that's uh, McCoy's direct quote. Damn. And they're not evolving; they're not growing. They are completely stagnant. The, the, doesn't matter that Vala is taking care of them. The planet has a worldwide temperature. Even at the poles, there's right. very little difference right. between the temperature. There's nothing wrong. Nothing is wrong except that Vala is going to destroy the Enterprise. Slight problem. <laughs> so what do they do? What do Kirk, Spock, and McCoy do? They figure out a way to justify breaking the Prime Directive and the uh, the, uh, uh, the what happens as a result is – they will learn to govern themselves and have a lot of sex in the process. <laughs> no, they like, won't, though. They won't learn to govern themselves <laughs> because there are 20 of them. I mean, this it's over for them. When he, when he destroys Vol, he kills that race of people. I mean, they may now transport someplace else or, or maybe more people come from Starfleet to live in this place that used to be a paradise. But I'm assuming since Vol was controlling everything that it's not going to be uh, quite the paradise that it was before. But there are 20 of these people. I understand, you know, I mean... uh, I can't, don't forget, they need a replacement. Now they can have lots of replacements. Yeah, and... you know build what? their people, build they, their race. They, 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 they got to get with the sex. Come, get, <laughs> yeah. come back a hundred years from now, though, and it's going to be like a scene from Deliverance. Okay, <laughs> I mean, there are only twenty of them. They're not. We're gonna, not. They're not going to. No, we know there are only twenty of them because uh, Kirk asked, "Where, where are the rest of the people?" And well, um, a, a, right. Akuda, Akuda yeah, says, Akuda. Akuda. Yeah. "No, this is everybody. This is all we got. we don't need more. We're fine." And you know what? They were until Kirk, you know, completely disrupted their lives. Well, just like just like Mirror Mirror spawned a whole spawn of sequels and offshoot episodes, and uh, and of course, I mean, there are books devoted to what happened originally in Mirror Mirror, and there are comic books that went mm-hmm. off in a completely mm-hmm. different direction based on Mirror Mirror. I'd be very curious to see what happened if they ever returned. To this planet, you know, in a hundred years, maybe in Picard's time, uh, is this race uh, have have they evolved or have they succumbed to chaos? You yeah. know, is it worth a whole episode? Who knows? But it's worth a, a shot. I mean, you know, you, you leave thinking just like the way Spock at the end of uh, Space Seed says, you know, I wonder be interesting to return right. to that planet to see what crop had sprung from the seedly planet today. And, and that's exactly what I was thinking. But when we finished recording the Apple, I, I thought, well, okay, Ken, you and I were very much on the same page about, look, Kirk's actions are terrible. There may have been another way to tell this story. If they had actually really struggled about the implications here of uprooting this group of people and breaking the prime directive, maybe made the situation a little more dire on the Enterprise, that they really had no choice whatsoever. But then you have a responsibility to the people that you just uprooted. Right. Um, and whether or not you have to leave behind a crewman like you did on uh, Space Seed. Of course, MacGyver's chose to go right. with uh, Khan. Or you got and, uh, the, the crewman in uh, the Corbomite Maneuver who decides yeah, to go away with Balak. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, I, I think all of that is uh, absolutely valid absolutely true i just kept coming back to the apple thinking well did we give a little short shrift because if you you know regardless of the anthropological problem going on here with kirk's actions 
if you remove all of that and say, well, this is purely metaphor, it's purely metaphor about us as the slaves to Val, whatever, the, the, the slaves to kind of complacency, um, the, the happiness, maybe you go back to the idea of this side of paradise. Um, are we actually saying something here about the problem of just sort of believing what you're given, just be accepting, taking what you're given as a handout uh, by Val, then you do not progress, you do not challenge yourself, you do not become something better. Well, well, this is a theme mm-hmm. that even now, after decades of seeing these episodes over and over again, the discussion has opened my mind right now to other episodes which explore those themes. Look at Who Mourns for Outer Nice. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they are told, you will worship me. Right. You will kill a deer. You will gather laurel leaves. And, you know, again, Kirk is like, Screw you. We have no need for gods. We find the yeah. one quite sufficient. Yeah. But that episode, Who Wants for Outer Nines? Uh, and then you've got uh, uh, This Side of Paradise, you know, mm-hmm. where they could just be stagnant in their paradise. So, you know, it was the hippie movement. It was 1967. And then you got the apple. Well, you know, everything's fine. It is paradise. Nobody's dying. You got plenty of food. Everything is cool. But this is what, what brings me back to one of the things I've always loved about Star Trek at its finest. It was about something. It was an allegory for, for progression, for evolving, for, you know, what is it that Kirk says in Who Wants for Adern- uh, uh, Adonai's, uh, uh, you know, on the, he, he, no, but he says, one of the episodes he says, mm-hmm. uh, we thrive on conflict. Mm-hmm. You take the you take that away. Oh, and metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there you go. And you know, that's you your favorite that, episode. You know, yeah. the, the companion is taking care of Zephyr Cochran for 150 years. Yeah, but he's he's dying emotionally because he's not evolving. Yeah. So there's that theme on an individual scale, and in the apple on this side of paradise, and who mourns Father eyes, it's much more, uh, I guess, global because it involves mm-hmm. more than just one person. Sure. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> You're not going with it, are you? Oh, but thank you for listening. <laughs> no, it's. A, I mean, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very imperialistic. It's a very Western idea. It's a very, it's a, it's a very Hollywood idea. It's a very. I'm at the top of the mountain, so let me tell you how great things are if you strive to get to the top of the mountain. That's what that idea is. There are plenty of people on this planet who would be more than happy to just not have to worry about food. There are plenty of people in this country who would be more than happy to not have to worry just about food. So it's a great allegory for people who have the uh, have the means. It's a great but, allegory for the people who have the means and who have that drive. But for 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 Kirk to continually decide for other people that the way they're living is not the right way to live and then make it impossible for them— I mean, he says in the apple that he's going to give them freedom. Well, no, he's not because they don't have the option of going back. We talked about this. um, I think we talked about this in the episode for the apple. At the very least, the people in this side of paradise could have gone back to that planet and sucked in the spores again. They could have done that. That option was still there for them. I still think that he just, you know, made that decision for them randomly, although he didn't actually make that decision for them. Starfleet did. In the apple, he made that decision for those people, and he says he's giving them freedom, but the one thing that he's not giving them is the chance to keep living their lives the way they were. He's, I mean, he's, he's just, and, and that's easy for a starship captain. That's easy for a guy who's got 400 people at his command. You know there's a chick who comes on the bridge every now and then and brings him coffee? He doesn't even ask for it. Somebody comes and brings him coffee. <laughs> Seriously. He's like, he'll be sitting there, like, writing up, like, some something, right, on that, on that you know, what I guess... 
would have ended up being like an iPad or a pad or whatever, you know, at some right. point. He's talking to Spock. Chick comes up with a tray. <laughs> right, he just takes a, He doesn't even say thank you. I mean, what the hell is, right. what the hell is he doing? Exactly. <laughs> but if he comes to some place where, where people aren't, you know, striving and building and doing and, you know, if, if, they're, if they're not pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps – then, well, this is, this, is a, this is a crap society. It's not even a society. These people are barely people. Let's see what we can screw up. And then, yeah, but, and then we'll leave them to take care of themselves. We might, leave, well, we might leave a Federation guy, but this is the other thing. It then becomes, uh, we say this over and over again. I'm sorry. This then becomes us taming the U.S. This then but, becomes but the West spreading across and saying, you know, hey, you people who have been here for – for, for countless years because you don't count years the way that we do. You people who have actually had formed some kind of society, I'm not really liking the way you're doing it because, you know, your belief in, in some sort of spirit thing is cool. But you see, I've got, I've got God. I've got Jesus. And by the way, I've also got trousers. <laughs> trousers. And it's I've always got, about the trousers, isn't it, Ken? <laughs> and I've got a desire for this land that you're sitting on. I mean, there's just something there's, there's something incredibly imperialistic about every time Kirk goes in and decides that the way somebody's living, sure, they look happy, but they can't really be happy because I can't imagine being happy this way. So tell you what we're going to do. It just, it, it just, uh, it angers okay, me. I hear your point. I hear your point, Ken, and you make it – is, it is beyond valid because, again, you know, one of the things about Star Trek that I've been uh, – that I'm grateful for is the way – the way time and perspective has changed my opinion about episodes that I liked a lot as a kid, but not so much now. The episodes I didn't really care for much that I now love, like Metamorphosis and Conscience of the King. Um, and also about the actions of some of these people, of course, you know, being Kirk. And I hear what you're saying, you know, uh, uh, that, that these people are happy and they're healthy. Why should Kirk go in and screw it up? But at the same time, you know... At the prime directive, okay, this non-interference cause, when you have people who are evolving in their own way organically and Kirk comes in and screws that up, yeah, that's totally a violation of the prime directive. But when they are being – living their lives in a uh, – uh, under control of a force or of another being that they can't control – it's different. They are not living in their own free will. And that's where Kirk says, wait a minute, this ain't right. And that's where Val screwed up. And that's where the spores screwed up. And that's why Kirk took it upon himself after, you know, conversing with his first officer that this is not right. We have to step in and, and, and change things the way they are. In the case of uh, uh, Bread and Circuses, you know, that planet had been living you know, this alternate timeline of the Roman Empire for thousands of years. So it would have been completely out of place for Kirk uh, or, if, you know, for even uh, uh, the, the, the prior starship to, uh, to step in and change their society. Like the reason when they got to Sigma Eosia 2 in a, a piece of the action, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the prior starship left the book there. And these people adopted their ways from a book instead of evolving on their own. And Kirk said, wait a minute, guys, this isn't you. This is us. You know, we have to fix this. 
So I see your point, Ken, but there's my counterpoint. <laughs> and I, you know what, and Scott, I'll kind of go along with what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, I, I have to separate the argument. I have to say that, yeah, absolutely, from an anthropological point of view, we can't just go in and screw things up. But, but... On Mission Log, our mission is to look at the morals, messages, meanings of Star Trek. And I think one of these sort of big global messages that comes out of Star Trek is that humanity, and of course we can argue that the servants of Val, they're not humans, okay, so maybe they're a special case there. Um, but humanity gets better when we overcome problems, right. when we have a challenge and we are able to overcome it. And, and that's something that Star Trek constantly says, exactly. whether it's on an individual basis or a, as a group, what have you. And, yeah, I, you know, Ken, I, like Scott, I, I'm hearing your argument. I get you. I get it. Um, I get it. The, there's nothing patently wrong with saying, here's happiness, but at what cost? And Kirk's there to slap that cost right in your face. And, and look, the <laughs> companion for 150 years in Metamorphosis has taken care of Zephram Cochran because the companion was in love with him. Zephram Cochran didn't realize this because the companion was an energy force. It didn't have a physical mm-hmm. you know, presence. It didn't look like Eleanor Donahue yet. Right. Um, but, you know, it wasn't enough for him. He was dying. I mean, he was dying emotionally because... He was bored. He was alone. And even after stranding uh, the shuttlecraft there with Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and, and uh, uh, Commissioner Hedford, you know, they were going to suffer the same fate, dying emotionally because, yeah, you know, the planet's cool and it's plenty of food. It's things taking care of us. We're never going to die. Immortality. What does uh, Cochran say? Immortality consists of boredom. Yeah. You know, that's not living. That's not evolving. Yeah. And that's, you know, in the case of in the case of Val. Uh, or even in the case of the side of paradise. While I, I, I definitely agree with you, Ken. I mean, I hear what you're saying about, you know, the colonists were happy there. I mean, they, you know, they grew a healthy appendix back. I mean, you know, there was no disease. Who Everybody doesn't want an appendix? Turn on, yeah. tune in and drop out. You know, these people were living <laughs> the dream on Omicron SETI 3. And Kirk stepped in and said, uh, no, sorry, Spores. I want my crew back. I, I'm, I'm the captain of this uh, starship and I, uh, I need my crew. So screw their happiness. <laughs> well, again, I've never I, I repeated. Well, <laughs> I've never said that Kirk should not have done that with his crew. Here's the thing. The problem that I have with what you're saying is it assumes that there is a finish line. The assumption seems to be that we're going to get to heaven and we no, can I, stop right there. The no, assumption seems so to be. Oh, I, okay. I think it's the exact right. opposite. I, I, I think I, we're, we're saying that the artist is never happiness. an end. It's, yeah. it's, you know, without getting too cheesy with it, it's the journey. And mm-hmm. we are always on a journey. We're always evolving, you know, from the, from, from the original series to the next generation. You know, you're watching the original show and the ideals and the technology and they're on, a, on, on these spaceships, you know, exploring the galaxy and, and, and the, the, the humanity has done away with greed and envy and currency for that matter. Um, but even by the 24th century, when the time of Picard and Cisco and Janeway, I mean, they're still evolving. I would like to to see a Star Trek uh, take place in the year 3000. You know, I mean, where would we be then? You know, what would mm. the Enterprise look like? What we, but we would still be human, overcoming 
uh, uh, learning about ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you're that, only talking about one small segment of the population, though. You're talking about the tiny segment of the population that we see on starships. Those people have a drive to be on starships. One of the things that bothers me in the original series is they keep talking about money. And I understand they keep talking about money because it's the 1960s, and you're not going to get people to really wrap their head around the idea that you don't need money. But I'm trying to remember, Cisco's dad's restaurant, did he charge? Oh, did he? Did why he? Why did he run a restaurant? He ran a restaurant because he wanted to run a restaurant, right? Sure. Because yeah. he, was able, he was able to run a restaurant. <laughs> okay. food is delicious. Okay, so he didn't have to <laughs> go to anybody and ask for permission, and he didn't have to angle, and he didn't have to barter, and he didn't have to do all of the things that Kirk is constantly saying that we had to do. Cisco's dad wanted to run a restaurant. You know what he probably didn't have to do? He probably didn't have to go to culinary school and he probably didn't have to intern under somebody for forever. And he probably didn't have to work and sweat and slave to get the money to buy the stuff to open the restaurant. That is the idea that we get. Now, maybe all of that did actually happen, but I don't get the idea that that's what he did. By the time we get to the 24th century here on this planet, the assumption seems to be that you can kind of do what you want. Now, I'm not saying you can do that to anybody else's detriment, but I'm saying you don't have to slog the way people have to slog today. And what's weird to me is it has always seemed like when we're talking about the Star Trek future, we are talking about a time where we have done away with greed and where we have done away with currents and we have done away with all those things that you just mentioned a moment ago. And yet, anytime Kirk comes across somebody who's done that, wipe the slate and start over. Now, there is a difference, it seems to me, between what was going on in the Apple and what was going on, say, in um, why do I always forget the name of the episode with Landru? Oh, Return, Return of the Archons. Archons. Return yeah. of the Archons is very different. There were people who wanted to break out of what was going on with Landru. Landru right. was literally yeah. controlling their minds. Like they're walking down the street and all of a sudden there's a high pitched thing. And now they are all literally his puppets. That's very different than what was happening on the Apple. In the Apple, we do not know that those people did not make a decision to live that life. You're assuming that they're being controlled by something. Somewhere along the way, somebody in their society built that machine to take care of them. That's a good point. It did not just rise up and start. They decided somewhere along the way to do that. Now, 10,000 years later, maybe they don't remember deciding to do that maybe they don't remember why they decided to do that or how they decided to do that or how the whole thing came about but there is no indication that this is being forced upon them by anybody else but but you know because you brought up return of the archons the 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 similarities between return of the archons and the apple don't is exist that both being don't exist the similarities machines. do not exist no they're both one, being run by machines one is being tended to land roots one is English. being tended to by a machine of loving grace the other one is controlling and they are both controlling you know no. the difference is that the people of val are feeding val so val can control them in both cases you are dealing with societies one more than the other where their their destinies are not are not progressing organically they are being controlled one in in the apple's case you know they're they're feeding the instrument that is controlling them in landrew's case it's just like you said they're just puppets who go crazy uh, you know at the red hour but uh you know but it all comes back to the way that uh you know i think that 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 what the show has said and still does say is that 
we need obstacles to overcome to better ourselves. And that is something that has been explored so many times in the original series, courtesy of, of the two genes, you know, Roddenberry and Kuhn, in episodes like Arena. You know, they see this lizard attacking an outpost and they go after it and they realize, oh, it was just defending itself. Mm-hmm. Then there's Devil in the Dark. There's the Horda. This thing is killing our people and we're there to mine it, but it's a mother protecting its eggs. And then there's the companion. Oh, it's this energy thing. It's holding us hostage. But wait, it's a lover. I mean, and it just, those episodes flip the perception over even on its participants of the the crew of the enterprise where they go wait we we were wrong about this we are learning something about ourselves because we are are we we even at that stage of their evolution in the 23rd century they still got it wrong and they learned from it in different ways but when you have and they did it organically but when you have something else controlling you, it's 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 not the same, you know. And and the difference between Val and Landru, well, there's not. I don't think there's that much of a difference. There's not there's not enough of a difference for me to say Kirk shouldn't have pulled the plug on Val or Landru. I mean, he was right to do both. All right, you there, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Oh, wait, is he getting on a plane? (laughs) (laughs) Touchdown in L.A. in four and a half hours. Okay, where is this guy, Mance? (laughs) Let me at him. (laughs) Um, I I do want to change gears just a little bit uh, because God knows this is an evergreen topic for us. Sure, Uh, yeah. uh, We're talking about this side of paradise and uh, the Apple now and Landrew and all this stuff. Um, But, uh, Scott, I do want to talk a little bit more about kind of your particular take on star trek and you know you've mentioned uh, uh metamorphosis a few times right. as your favorite all-time episode it is. right Am yes I, okay. that's right so uh, it, give us just the the nutshell summary real quick by the time this airs we will have already covered it but uh give us the nutshell and why that one speaks to you so much well in, in a nutshell uh kirk spock and mccoy and commissioner hefford are on their way back to the enterprise commissioner is supposed to be stopping a war on epsilon canaris three but she has a very rare disease, even though the odds of contracted or contracting it are literally billions to one. So they're taking her back to the Enterprise to treat her. They get commandeered by an energy force that strands them on a planet, uh, makes the shuttlecraft completely inoperable. So now they're stuck on this planet. Turns out there's a guy on this planet who's been there for 150 years and is actually the creator of Warp Drive. And uh, they're trying to understand the nature of this companion, of this thing this energy force that has held them there. Kirk wants to get off the planet, get Commissioner Hepper back to the Enterprise and and save her life and, in a sense, stop this war. But uh, he is too blind and all of them are too blind to see until they discover the true nature that the companion is a lover that is in love with Zephyr Cochran and wants to keep him happy and alive forever. And in order to, to uh, satiate his his uh, loneliness, they bring he, the companion brings these other people there, but that's not going to be enough. And this commissioner is uh, Commissioner Heffer is dying, and just through reasoning, only the way that Kirk knows how, uh, reasons with the with the companion uh, uh, in a way that you think might backfire, but actually works out for everybody. Where 
tells the companion that you can't love the human because you are not human. And she goes, well, if I were human, I could love. And she disappears. And before you know it, she has, she has taken over or, or combined herself or, or meshed uh, with, with Commissioner Hepford's body. So the two of them are one in her body, the commissioner and the companion. And finally, the, uh, Zephyr Cochran can see that this woman was really special, took care of him. And is really just a beautiful being, regardless of its now physical appearance. Well, this sounds like a celebration of Idic, if there ever was one. Is that infinite the thing? diversity and infinite combinations? Absolutely. Exactly. This is one of a few episodes to do that. Uh, especially, you know, hats off to uh, a few people for making this episode so timeless, in the sense that this is 1967. This episode was filmed, and you have uh, an authority figure who is a woman. Basically, this is Hillary Clinton in mm-hmm. in space. Okay, then you have which the, is, by the way, a new series coming to HBO. Hillary Clinton in space, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, starring Lena Dunham. <laughs> um, and then you have uh, the director Ralph Sinetsky, who's directed the most sensitive episodes of the show, like The Side of Paradise, uh, Return to Tomorrow, Is There in Truth No Beauty, and especially the musical score by George Dooning, who is an Oscar nominee for his score for Picnic. But he directed or he, he did the musical score for some of the finest episodes like The Empath, Is There in Truth No Beauty, and Return to Tomorrow, uh, which were also mm-hmm. Rav Sineski's episodes. But it is, the, uh, it is the way the episode starts off as there is a threat and the captain is acting on his instincts to protect his crew from the threat and then realizing that he was wrong in his perception and embracing what is really going on here – that this and the episode turns from being sort of a sort of thriller to a very unique and beautiful love story that is very very moving up until the very end, Excellent. and that is why it has stood out for me even above like action episodes like Mirror Mirror and the Doomsday Machine and Balance of Terror or and just the all time classic like you know Sitting on the Edge of Forever. This is the episode that. No matter how many times I watch it, I still get a little choked up by it. So many people I've met through the years uh, at conventions, uh, at the movies and whatever, they, they have so many different reasons for, for loving Star Trek. And, and so many of them have said because it paints such a positive depict, depiction of the future. But for me, it was always about the characters. It was always about the characters. When I was a kid, you know, that the prospect of a prosperous future didn't didn't resonate with me. I was too young to appreciate that. But what did it for me were these characters, especially Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. I admired them. I wanted to. I, they, I felt like they were. And honestly, even at 44 years old, they still are my friends. I aspire to be just like them. Actually, we met at a convention. Yeah. You were there as oh, yeah. a fan. I thought that was so cool. Um, and you've been to a lot of conventions. Uh, tell us a little bit about kind of that fan experience and what what you have experienced with the way that the show has impacted people's lives. You know, uh, for the time that I was working for uh, the company Creation Entertainment, which has – they've been doing the, the conventions since 1971. Uh, you know, I worked there from 1991 through 2000 and I traveled all over the country – uh, you know, managing and emceeing shows and meeting fans. And they really are, and of course I'm speaking as a fan myself, but I feel like I'm just so lucky and honored to be in such great worldwide company of such 
really great people. I mean, you know, anytime you have a a a, a, a an identity, every time you have a a, uh, a property, whether it's a TV show, a film, a musician, a band, sports, there's going to be a small percentage that goes a little overboard. And of course, you know, there this, the Star Trek fans do have that percentage too. But the ma- vast majority of them are great people. They just they just are inspired by the positive messages, by the great stories, by the intelligence, by the characters themselves and honestly you know i grew up i was born and raised in philadelphia that's where i discovered star trek that's when i when i went to conventions and it is because of my love for star trek that i moved to california you know i will say that when i was working for creation after a few years i started to lose star trek as a hobby because it became my job but then after i left the dvds came out and then the blu-rays came out and i rediscovered it with a completely different perspective because I was reviewing movies by this point and realizing the brilliance of episodes like Balance of Terror and especially The Conscience of the King, which is basically Hamlet in space. But I digress. <laughs> but it is, it is the way I've, I've been able to, to rediscover and, and fall in love with Star Trek all over again because of the remastered special effects and because of this uh, 15 CD soundtrack and, and because of artwork done by, by Juan Ortiz, you know, the way he's reimagining all the – I'm just so thrilled that, that Star Trek continues to thrive and I can't wait for the new film. It's a great time to be a Trekker. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Scott Mance. Again, you can follow him at Movie Mance. That's at Movie Mance on Twitter. And uh, I hope we get to do this again sometime. That'd be great, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Scott. Incoming transmission. Greetings, Mr. Ray and Mr. Champion. This is uh, John at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter. I have a comment about who mourns for Adonai. And I know my, I may be in the minority here, but this is one of my least favorite episodes at least philosophically. Not only is it incredibly sexist towards the female guest star, with her, oh, she's a woman, she's going to leave once she finds a man. But it's also really culturally biased by a suggestion that um, the Greeks started a civilization, ignoring the fact that they took a lot of Egyptian, Babylonian, Phoenician influences into their own culture, which, you know, all early cultures did. But also, I just find the fact that the Star Trek is kind of endorsing an ancient astronaut scenario insulting, that the Greeks just took the images of Apollo and the other Olympians just literally from these alien visitors and constructed their entire civilization around them. I think that goes entirely against the humanist philosophy of Star Trek that I find so appealing. Even as somebody who believes in God, I find it. I find the philosophy that human beings can achieve anything through their own effort and through science and through, you know, hard work and goodwill and and the genuine compassion that we have for one another. Well, I feel like this episode totally contradicts that whole aspect of uh, Gene Roddenberry's vision and the vision of future writers of the show. And I think uh, this sort of ancient astronauts or uh, space travelers visiting 
primitive worlds, be that the Federation visiting other worlds or aliens visiting Earth in an earlier time, I think that stuff was explored much more uh, effectively and in a much more interesting way in the next generation. So thank you. Sorry for the long-winded rant. I look forward to your podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for calling in, John. Quasar Sniffer, if that is your real name. Um, you know, I, I actually didn't think of it that way until I heard your message. And I, I have to say that there's a lot that you're saying that I agree with. Um, I also kind of uh, roll my eyes and start to pull my hair out whenever I hear about the uh, ancient astronaut, uh, alien, uh, ancient aliens kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, there's a great quotation, and I, I can't source it precisely, but I believe it's from the late 80s. Uh, but there's an interview with Gene Roddenberry, and he says very specifically, some of my favorite lines, where uh, he, he addresses this idea that aliens built the pyramids. And he said, of course, aliens didn't build the pyramids. Human beings built the pyramids because they're smart and they work hard. And, uh, and I thought that was pretty great. Now, I don't think that... Um, I, I don't think that there is a lot that is invalidated by who are mourns for Adonai. I mean, you, you kind of introduce this in the science fiction context, and what they're doing within the show is, as I said in our review episode, boldly questioning the existence of God and boldly questioning the place of religion in that world that is created and uh, presented by Star Trek. Um, and you made some other good points. You said, you know, there, there is a sexist undercurrent in there for sure. Ken and I point that out a lot in, uh, in our show, much of the chagrin of some of our, uh, our listeners. And uh, you pointed out the idea that, yes, you know, they are going with Greek civilization kind of ignoring uh, Babylonian and Egyptian and all these other civilizations that had occurred before. But I will say this, though. Um, the idea, at least as it's presented in Who Mourns for Adonai, they are specifically talking about Greeks. And I, I don't think it necessarily negates the contribution of those other civilizations. Um, so I, I think I, as a kind of shorthand, which we get a lot in Star Trek, a shorthand for Halloween when we look at, um, or a shorthand for fear when we look at Cat's Paw or something like that, this is kind of a shorthand for the idea of another race, another technology being worshipped by people who don't understand any better. And in this case, they chose to go with Greek uh, and in fact, made up Michael Forrest with that very, uh, you know, very kind of typical, stereotypical look with the uh, the toga and the laurel wreath and all of that, like a statue. Um, so I'm I'm okay with some of the license they they took in uh, in that episode. Ken, you've been awfully quiet. Do you uh, do you feel strongly one way or the other here? Nope. <laughs> Sorry, no, right. I, I don't, no, the whole alien astronaut, you know, starting humanity thing doesn't bother me as much as it seems to bother um, you guys, because, I mean, that's not taking pride in humanity. That's taking pride in the single cell organism from which we assume that we evolved. Mm. I mean, we're talking about something that happened 5000 years ago, according mm. to that. I mean, when Apollo was here, right? Right. Even if you go to Prometheus and say millions of years ago, aliens landed here and they, you know, seeded us. And so that sucks because we should be able to do this without aliens. It doesn't matter because you're talking about starting from, you know, one step above Mr. Ugg. 
So, I mean, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, what have we done in the 5,000 years since? I mean, you've actually got something kind of weird going on in Who Mourns for Adonai where Kirk is standing in front of God, right? Or in front of what had you know served as God here on Earth and saying, yeah, you know what? We've moved on. Right. <laughs> so, right, right. I mean, getting yeah. caught up on the, you know, alien astronaut, um, you know, is what, you know, started or at least, you know, pushed humanity along. I don't feel that negates where we are and where we're going because, I mean, we were only pushed along. It's not like every five feet. Mm-hmm. We're not still waiting for manna from heaven. I'll put it that way. I mean, at mm-hmm. some point we we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we built our own cars and, you know, did all the things that we can be proud of, whether we you know, started off as a single cell organism or, or the monolith landed and one of the monkeys touched it. <laughs> hey guys, this is Benji Stanley calling in. I just finished your episode review for the changeling. And I just wanted to throw my two cents in this, this particular episode, you guys really ha- honestly have me thinking a little bit more. So than all the other episodes that you've reviewed at this point. And I really thought that your takes on all the stuff that this episode touched on was really interesting because it's a lot of things that never even occurred to me before, such as the episode being similar to Star Trek Motion Picture. I never really made that connection before, but now I can see it, and I thought that that was really cool. But more than anything, what I was really wanting to touch on was to somewhat offer a counter-argument to Mr. Ken Ray. Um, You mentioned in the episode that you tend to generally be more left-wing, and that's fine. Personally, um, I'm very right-winged. I'm I'm very conservative. I definitely appreciated what you had to say. I thought it was very interesting. I'm definitely um, one of those people that prefers the fossil fuels. I don't have a problem with alternative energy by any means. However, I don't think that there's really much sense in not using what we have right now when we could use it. It just seems a little silly to me. But anyway, I'm getting a little bit off topic here. But what I really wanted to touch on was what you guys had to say about Nomad, about, and and this is is more your argument more so than John's, but really what you were talking about, about how mankind has created these machines and their intelligence, thus their life. And from your standpoint, I can see what you're saying. And for me personally, I have a much different view on that. Um, I'm I'm generally a very religious person. I'm of a Christian faith and follow the biblical scriptures and whatnot. And so because of my faith, I disagree with that particular point that I see human beings as being created by God, by our Creator. Thus, machines created by us are machines. They're simply programmed by what we give them. They don't have that that, that soul, if you were. So that was just my, my big thing on it. And so I tend to agree more with Kirk that machines are never going to be on the same level as humans for that reason. But I really enjoyed hearing your take on it. I really enjoyed just getting your thoughts on it. And I really, I'm really enjoying the show. I really think that you guys are able to make good arguments and still be respectful to everyone from 
each side that they may be on, whether they're of a religious faith of myself or whether they be of any particular ethnic group, gender, or whatever it may be, guys really do a great job of really looking at all these aspects. Well, thank you very much for calling in, Benji, and for um, uh, being respectful as well. And I'm going to respectfully disagree with you on a couple of points. Um, on the first one, on the fossil fuels thing, I, I would... You can either take my word for it or you can go back and listen to the episode. I didn't say that everybody on the right is against alternative energy. What I said was there are some people who are. I actually stressed some. I also said in what I was saying that I understand the need for fossil fuels right now. So I'm not an all or nothing guy at this point. I was actually speaking against people who are all or nothing. It doesn't sound like you're an all or nothing guy. I'm not sure how it came out sounding like I was as well, but I'm not. So let me go ahead and just clear that part up right now. As far as the machine intelligence thing, um, I guess that's a question of whether you think we're going to get there or not. Um, some people do. Some people don't. Some people think we're going to get there and it's going to be awesome. Some people think that we are going to get there and it's going to be a terrible thing. I think the thing that bothers me about what you're saying is you're saying, well, those are programmed, so they're not real. Um, I mean, you know, offense when I say you are also programmed and I'm not saying, oh, you've been subverted by the man. I mean, God, if I mean, you, you, you stated a belief in God, God didn't teach you English and God didn't teach you to drive. You're programmed. You're programmed by the people around you and by your surroundings. And, you know, if you wanted to argue that about is your belief in God programmed in, I mean, that's a whole other conversation that you, we can have, or I'm perfectly fine not having that conversation too. Just because something is programmed doesn't mean that it's not real. And if we eventually get to a place where machine intelligence is actually intelligent, I don't think we can say, but, you know, it's lesser. I mean, that, that goes to the whole carbon chauvinism thing that we've talked about uh, time and time again on this show. And uh, as we have discussed, I am also a Silicon supporter. I mean, if it gets to that point, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to side with it. What's a, I don't know. Well, an iPad, I'm not going to say any iPad is worth more than any human being because human beings have infinitely more to offer. But if we get to some point where we actually have an artificial, I hate that term, where we have a manufactured intelligence, um, as opposed to, you know, one who grew up next door to me with arms and legs and eyes and, you know, all the things that come with being human. It doesn't feel to me like we can automatically discount that. Now, again, that's assuming that we get there, which some people think we will and some people think we never will. John, you know what? I, I really, really want Benji, Benji, if you're listening, and I hope you are, I really want you to call back when we get around to measure of a man in next gen. Because that... <laughs> See, in a few years, Benji. <laughs> in a couple of years, yeah. yeah. Um, because that episode is specifically about this question. You know, what, what do we do when we are faced with, um, and I will use the term artificial intelligence, although manufactured intelligence is That's because the, you're a carbon chauvinist. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but when we're faced with a, a being and how do we determine its rights when, uh, when our scope is only based on human rights or, or naturally the, the, the rights of naturally occurring living things, um, and then they put data to the test. Um, I, I think it's a great argument to have. You know, I, I'm always fascinated when we see shows like um, uh, 
Uh, did, did you see the Nova episode where Watson, the computer that played Jeopardy, uh, was tested out? Uh, no. No, uh, it, it, it's what's so groundbreaking about Watson is that Watson is just fed information. Now, we're talking about the early part of the 21st century, and Watson is, even now, a, a room full of computers, mm-hmm. all right? And you think about computers that, like, code-breaking computers from the 1940s and how all of that information, all of that data now fits on a chip smaller than your, you know, thumbnail. And one day we will get to a point where everything that is Watson is also down into a computer chip the size or smaller than your thumbnail. And the idea behind Watson is that you, you feed it information and it can make it for lack of a better word, fuzzy logic. It can come up with answers to questions, not just regurgitating data that matches. Like if I type something into Google, if I type Star Trek into Google, I get a a list of a million responses back for Star Trek, Mm -hmm. but you can ask Watson um, a, a question like, uh, particularly, uh, they're talking about medical applications for Watson, saying, um, "Yeah, you know, I, I've got these symptoms where I'm, I, I've got a stomach cramp, and I've got this, and I've got a fever. What do you think I have?" And then Watson will come back with narrowed down, relevant information that is the most likely answer to the question, not just a list of sites that describe stomach cramps. You know, it's fascinating stuff. And and this is sort of the nascent steps into intelligence, making computers intelligent beyond just what people type into them. Um, so I, I'm kind of with you in that respect, Ken. We, we will get there. Um, I, I don't know how soon. I don't know what it'll look like. But then when we do get there, we, we're going to have a whole lot of interesting ethical questions about what do we do with these, how do we treat them, and um, what do we use them for. And I think people like uh, Robert J. Sawyer, who we had in the first supplemental or the second supplemental, I guess, uh, would say that we need to go ahead and answer those questions now. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. – um, oh, which book of his did I read recently? Mindscan. Mm-hmm. Um, is about people uploading themselves to robots. Mm. Upload, yeah, it's sort of a Roger Corby thing, but a little bit different because they're actually choosing mm-hmm. to do it. And um, and you know what what is their place going to be in society? And it's yeah. kind of interesting. I mean, I don't. I I wonder actually if he would write it the exact same way. Well, I know there are parts he wouldn't write the same way now. I mean, just based on what's happened in the world in the past five or six years. And I shouldn't say I know that, but I would be surprised if he would write the exact same book again. But long and the short of it is, and I think he actually talked about this in the interview, I mean, it's the job of a science fiction author um, yeah. to sort of consider these things now <laughs> before we actually get there. So, I mean, good that we're having the discussion. And um, again, I, I thank you very much for, you know, disagree. That's awesome. Thank you for um, respectfully disagreeing. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, hey, speaking of Roger Corby, did you see that one of our uh, Facebook uh, uh, followers wrote in? I, I can't remember which episode it was, but they said that they basically were going to have a drinking game that every time we mention Roger Corby. It so was, no, it's the third one. It was <laughs> so, iMud. It was iMud. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll that's bet right. it's going to come up. Yeah. Somebody yeah. said, and I think I think somebody else wrote back and said uh, three times in the first five minutes. <laughs> But isn't that incredible that that here's this early episode and really, you know, all all, all you 
sort of take away from it if you're not deeply analyzing the episode as, oh, yeah, Rock was huge and Sherry Jackson was hot and they made Kirk into a robot. But this idea, the, the central idea in this episode permeates so much. I think that's so cool. And that's yeah. what makes doing this show worthwhile. Well, especially if one of the two people on the show is... Uh... <laughs> you know, has his bag packed ready to go to you know mind scan or <laughs> or or corby labs you know whichever one right. it is so right i mean that yeah that doesn't hurt yeah hey uh speaking of facebook um i want to uh touch on something do, do you like a good internet argument i ask rhetorically to our entire audience um something really interesting happened and I'm a little surprised that it happened when it did for the episode that it did. But our whole goal here at Mission Log is to have these deep conversations about Star Trek and about the morality, the ethics, uh, everything that's presented here. And it, it usually surprises me what episodes will kick off that argument. Because you think that some are going to go one direction and then they don't. And then others, you or I will just kind of make an offhanded comment. And then all of a sudden you get this explosion of feedback. Um, so I'm, I'm always surprised by that. I'm surprised by the ones that do and I'm surprised by the ones that don't. Mm -hmm. Perfect example, who mourns for Adonai? We had that call earlier from uh, John Quasar Sniffer. And um, – we actually did not get a lot of feedback for that episode. And I thought, okay, here we are. We're taking on religion. We're taking on God. We're doing all that. Really didn't get that much feedback, um, relatively speaking. But one that did generated this, uh, I'll use the word kerfuffle, on, uh, on our Facebook page in particular is Mirror Mirror. And it's another one of those situations where you look at Mirror Mirror and go, oh, yeah, it's Spock with a beard, it's Uhura showing her midriff, and they fight it out, and you get them back to the right universe. Mm -hmm. End of story. No. No, I'm <laughs> here to tell you, Ken, not the end of the story. Um, I made a comment toward the end of that episode about uh, Kirk's impassioned plea to Spock right before, to, to alt Spock right before they beam back. And uh, I made a comment about how Kirk appeals to Spock's logical side to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I thought that was really fascinating. And, uh, well, it, it kicked off this big heated, um, fortunately very intelligent argument on our Facebook page between Bill and Robert. Uh, so if you want to check it out, go to the Facebook page and look at the entry for mirror mirror. There's a picture of bearded Spock right there. So you can find it pretty easily. And, um, and they really, I mean, it, they both basically wrote a book on this. You, you could publish this thing and it would be fascinating reading. I don't want to get into the argument here uh, for a number of reasons. A, I'm not a moral philosopher. Neither of you can, I don't think, unless you're hiding something from me. Um, but uh, I, I do want to address, though, just the, the very idea of how we are addressing morals on this show. Um, because basically the, the first volley in this argument was Bill saying, you know, I, I find it fascinating that the discussion again touches on the origin of morality. Um, and he, he wraps up his argument by saying it, it's, uh, it's silly wishful thinking to think that morality can come from any place other than God. And there are many 
deeply nuanced and fascinating arguments to be made on either side of that. I think it is a really valuable, really important argument to have. And there are great people on either side to say, yes, you need God for morality or no, you don't need God for morality. Um, I know which side I fall on mostly. And uh, Ken, this may be something that you have kicked around quite a bit in your life as well. I think what's important here, though, what I want to address is the idea that, Ken, you and I aren't doing this show from a particular point of view. We, 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 you apparently haven't read our Facebook page. I have an atheist agenda. Well, okay. Well, okay. So let, let's talk about that. We, we have our biases. We have our beliefs and we have our own philosophies. But, but here's the thing. The goal and we may come close to that goal or further away from that goal, depending on when you catch us. But our goal is to address what is presented in Star Trek. So it would be a very different thing if either, if either Star Trek were starting out from a point of view saying, here is biblical philosophy in the, in the context of a science fiction universe. And then you and I could go, oh, okay, yeah, that, that is or is not. Mm-hmm. Or it would be a different thing if you and I were starting our show from the point of view of saying, um, we are going to examine Star Trek, but we're going to do it from a biblical point of view or a religious point of view, even if it's not Christian uh, theology. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's really important for me to get across is that you and I sit there and watch the episodes and we go, okay, here's a moral point or here's an ethical dilemma. And the only context that we really have is the context of Star Trek. What are they saying about that belief, that philosophy, that morality, that ethical dilemma? How do they approach it? So, so far, correct me if I'm wrong, so far there hasn't been a big reliance on traditional theology or the calling out of God to make those pronouncements on Star Trek. It's usually something to do with either an appeal to logic, sometimes an appeal to motion, Kirk uh, making an appeal to uh, sort of generically the idea of freedom, of uh, uh, sort of the the individual ability to make decisions. Um, These are the things that I get out of Star Trek. And it's going to be fascinating when we get to the end of the original series, and then again when we get to the end of Next Gen and the other series, to kind of paint the big picture and say, well, in every you know individual episodes we got these kind of messages, but by the time we got to the end of it, here are the big overarching comments that we're getting on uh, uh, or getting out of Star Trek. So that that's really all I wanted to say about that. I mean, um, I, I will. I will leave the argument with this. Um, Ken, are you familiar with Euthyphro? Uh, uh, um, that's like a frozen yogurt with like a like a sprinkle topping. It's delicious. <laughs> it's really delicious. Um, I am not familiar uh, with whatever you just said. Euthyphro. Uh, so th- this is one of the earliest arguments about this position about where where does morality come from? Uh, does morality come from God? Um, it's a dialogue. It is a dialogue uh, between Euthyphro and Socrates, written by Plato. And the idea essentially comes down to this. Um, 
Socrates is asking Euthyphro questions about what is moral. And Euthyphro is trying to come up with these descriptions of morality. And he's saying, well, it pleases the gods. And then it finally comes down to this. The question becomes, is something morally right because God commands it? Or does God command it because it is morally right? And whichever way you answer the question, you, you kind of have this problem because if it's something – it, it, I, I should say it this way. If something is morally right because God commands it, then it assumes that the moral lesson exists outside of God's command. Okay? And then if God commands it because it is right, then there's no particular principle to be learned. There's nothing that, that you would otherwise pick. It's just, that, okay, well, God says it is, therefore, therefore we must do it. Um, I, I got I to say, and, yeah. and uh, forgive me. Yeah, go ahead. You're full of beans. I mean, you just are. What do you mean? But you said, how, how do you mean I'm full I, of beans? I don't want to get into this discussion, you said. And you said yeah, several yeah. times you don't want to get into this discussion. You made like four points, but you don't want to have the argument. <laughs> And that's, you know, I mean, if that's what you want to do, go for it. But I, you know, just as we sometimes call Star Trek out, we will also call each other out. I got to call you out on that one, dude. That's fair. Have the argument or don't have the argument. But don't say, I don't have the argument. Let me just say. Well, uh, but it, uh, here's the reason that that I that I brought up Euthyphro and brought up this stuff because I, I'm trying to make the point that this argument is older than uh, – a, a specific religion, mm-hmm. Cert, you know, certainly older than modern moral philosophy. And there are a lot of moral philosophers that I think are very interesting to listen to, very interesting to watch. I mentioned Sam Harris in particular in the uh, Mirror Mirror episode, but there are a lot of others that, that we could pull from. Mm-hmm. But uh, but here's the thing, and, and uh, thank you for calling me out. <laughs> That's fine. My point is that the argument has been going on and on and on, and it isn't specifically an argument tied to Christian theology. It's yeah. an argument about morality, and we all bring our own points of view to it, and whether you follow one particular religion or not, um, obviously that will help to inform the argument that you make. So y- yes and no. Yeah, I-, I don't want to just sit here and go tit for tat to argue every point made by Bill or every part, every point made by Robert. They did that very well online. My point is just to say we, we're trying to approach morality simply as what is shown to us in Star Trek. And by the way, this argument isn't something that you and I created. Yeah. That, you know, that, that was something that I kind of got the impression of from Bill's uh, initial comment. He's like, oh, I find it amusing that Ken and John keep throwing this in there. Well, you know, the <laughs> argument about morality is older than me and you. <laughs> you know? Right. So that, that, that's really the issue at hand. Um, yeah, I, I kind of got on a soapbox. I apologize for no, that. No, 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 you're fine. I'm, and I'm sorry, if yeah. I, I, I'm sorry if that seemed mean. No, um, no, no, no. Can we, can we address another episode that uh, had some interesting feedback come from it? Absolutely. I mud. What? I know. (laughs) What? I know. You were a little surprised at the stuff that I presented in iMud. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the feedback that we got, generally speaking, was just have fun with it. 
Yeah. That it was just a fun episode and we should just have fun with it. To put it in its harshest terms, we're not allowed to just have fun. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we do have fun. I thoroughly enjoy it. I kind of felt... I kind of felt bad for Scott in the interview earlier, and I certainly hope this doesn't happen to us. But he said in the interview earlier that when he was working for Creation for as many years as he was working for Creation, he lost the fun of Star Trek because it became his job. And it was mm-hmm. only after he quit working for Creation for a while that he was able to go back and refine Star Trek as something fun. Um, yeah. At this point, I still find it fun. But Agreed. we Me actually, yeah. I mean, we're actually charged. At, you know, to go through and find the messages, morals, and meanings of every episode of Star Trek. Take it apart. We actually say that every time. We take it apart to find the messages, morals, and meanings and figure out whether the episode stands the test of time. So right. I would say, I mean, almost as, as a self-defense mechanism on your part, if there is an episode that you love above all others and, and don't want to hear anything bad about – Maybe don't listen to that mission log because we're not always mm-hmm. going to say something bad about every episode of mission log. But where we are charged with, you know, really trying to take it apart and suss stuff out of it, uh, there's a chance we will. So yeah. I certainly didn't mean to offend anybody by, by you know, doing what we do with every episode of Star Trek when we did that with iMud. And I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And please continue to. I mean, I don't want anything that we say or do to to detract from anybody's enjoyment of it. It's just, you know, we we, we have this thing that we're supposed to do. And so uh, we do that thing we do. We did get some uh, email back from people saying, wow, I I never looked at that episode that way. That is the greatest compliment. It's when we get an email from somebody saying that (laughs) or you you challenged my idea. Somebody uh, actually wrote to us and thanked us for, for pulling something interesting out of that episode. Yeah, Which, right. You know, <laughs> I was sort of surprised to see that, but, you know, and yeah. you're welcome. And so, yeah. Hello, Mission Log. Oren here from All Things Trek. I was sad to note that I missed the supplemental episode on this side of paradise, but I hope this little bit of feedback is still well. I just wanted to register my complete 100% support for Ken's position on this side of paradise. This is an episode in which Kirk tells me that it is not okay to actually be happy. I must strive for happiness, but if I ever achieve it, that's actually wrong. I must continue to build spaceships and giant buildings and go and colonize worlds for no other reason than because that is what will lead to happiness. Not ever achieving it, mind you, but will struggle to get there. I think that that episode was a clumsy attempt to satirize the counterculture movements of the 60s, along with The Way to Eden. And I found that very unfortunate considering Star Trek's normal history of social progressiveness. In any way, or in any case, I would love to discuss this topic in more detail. However, I will try to keep this to a short length. And again, I just want to register that, Ken, don't let anyone tell you you're wrong because you are 100% correct. All Things Trek, signing off. Well, thank you very much. And I want to register my complete 100% support for your 100% support of me, Oren, <laughs> and my position there. I got to say, uh, shout out to Girl in Four Colors on Twitter as well. She sort of made a similar uh, argument um, over one, two, three tweets, which I will read to you. There are 140 characters or less. So what? You got a bus to catch? Um, Ken, I just want you to know that I am on your side in literally every happiness debate you two have. A lot of people never have the chance to strive for happiness because they're too busy striving for survival. 
The idea that striving for happiness is more important than happiness itself only comes from people who are already happy. Eh, it's an interesting idea. And oddly <laughs> enough, one that I will support because, you know, uh, for all the reasons that we've talked about many times, and I'm sure we will hit again a time or two. I, I love it when you feel validated, Ken. That, well, it happens so rarely. You know, fast forward. <laughs> uh, yeah. First half of this show, man. First half of this show. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. All right. First half hey. of this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you find people who are listening right now want to chime in with your two cents for or against either way, however it is that you feel about what we're discussing on Mission Log, you can reach out to us at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter all at the handle Mission Log Pod. You can call us at 323-522-5641, 323-522-5641. You can email us the old-timey way at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget, we have a beautiful homepage at missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments in an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Speaking of which more of those all the time please keep the channel open now leaving nerdist.com